Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Special Counsel Jack Smith added new charges in the classified documents case against former President Donald Trump. A third defendant, a Mar-a-Lago property manager, was also charged with trying to destroy surveillance footage and lying to investigators. And Hunter Biden's guilty plea agreement on two federal tax charges is on hold after a judge expressed legal and constitutional concerns about the arrangement. Preet Bharara and I discuss all that and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the Insider community. So let's talk about that. We will come back to handicapping what, what, if anything, will happen with the January 6th case and indictment. But this new indictment, so people should understand that the government has the ability and the right, and it happens, you know, fairly common. They bring an indictment when they have sufficient facts that they think warrant bringing an indictment. And there's a lot of considerations in the timing. But they keep investigating. You don't stop investigating just because you brought an indictment unless you really think you're done, but that's not always the case. And you develop more facts and you get enough evidence against someone else. You bring a superseding indictment and you can tell an indictment, by the way, for lay people is a superseding indictment because ahead of the caption, it'll say S1, meaning it's the first superseding indictment. And sometimes if the case is pending for a while, you'll see an S2, an S3, an S4, you know, it can keep going and going and going. The downside or the one consequence of bringing superseding indictments is it could push the trial date off, which we know that Jack Smith and his team doesn't want. Anything else I'm missing in this primer about superseding indictments? No, except I'll, I'll make this one sort of almost too obvious statement. It is not a normal DOJ practice to have information available to you and ready to go at the time that you indict that you hold and then put in a superseding indictment. In other words, I just don't think the normal practice, and one would think that in this case, DOJ is very concerned about following normal practice and not treating Trump differently from any other defendant, that these charges would have been ready to rock and roll, but withheld so that they could supersede a month or so down the road. Yeah, I think the ordinary course is when you get new evidence, you bring it to bear in a new indictment. I guess one other possibility is, it's unlikely, but I guess... Hypothetically, you could have an indictment against two people, in this case, Donald Trump and Walt Nauda. And you're hoping that a third person who's a witness will cooperate with you, but that cooperation goes south, and then you have no choice but to indict that person. I don't think that's what happened here, but before we get to that, maybe we should explain to folks what the new charges are. And they're kind of interesting, right? They are. So DOJ ends up adding four new charges in the superseding indictment. The first one names only Trump. This is count 32, the new charge of willful retention involving the incident at Bedminster that's now been widely publicized, where Trump waves around something. You hear it sort of rattling in the audio tape because there's audio tape and says that it's a classified document. Oh, what a shame. You know, I used to be able to unclassify these when I was president. I can't do that anymore. And so that charge has been added. And then there are three. Wait, can we pause? Can we pause yeah. on that? Yeah, that's worth talking about because we—it's a big one. We speculated and engaged in conjecture about why that wasn't charged as an initial matter, and there was some question. I think did the government have that document in its possession? 
Was there a venue problem because this meeting happened in Bedminster, New Jersey, but the case is brought in the Southern District of Florida? What do you think about those observations now? So we now know how the government got its hands on this document. Every other willful retention charge is based on a document that was recovered when DOJ executed the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. But this Count 32 document was recovered when Trump returned that tranche of documents, I think in January of 2022, I might be off on the date, but that, that early return of documents to the National Archives. And so you don't know, did DOJ have it all along? Or once this story surfaced, did somebody start hunting for it? We know that they sent a subpoena to Trump that asked for documents that would match the description of the document that was discussed in this meeting, and the Trump lawyers responded that they didn't have anything. Perhaps that triggered someone to look back through the National Archives documents and they found it. I think it's more likely that they knew all along what they had. And then you have the venue question. And I think the venue question is answered this way. You could have brought a standalone case in New Jersey. I think that that's clear. But it's easier and and I think more in line with practice to put it into this pre-existing indictment for the simple reason that the retention was initially in Florida. And this sort of sets up this whole notion in the add-on obstruction charges of movement of documents to avoid DOJ's investigation. So I think it's very nicely done. It is interesting. And I guess some people also have speculated, and I think you have a view on this also, that, you know, you have plenty of charges here. One reason, arguably, to add this charge beyond just having another charge that's provable beyond a reasonable doubt is that it becomes easier to get in this phone conversation at Bedminster that you just described a moment ago, where Trump is saying things like, I could have declassified it when I was president, etc., which is a really damning conversation. And if it now is directly relevant to a particular charged count in the indictment, then there's really no question that that conversation comes in, although it likely would have come in otherwise. But now there is no doubt that conversation comes in. What do you make of that? Yeah, you know, I think I'm an outlier on this one. I think the argument that you're making that it makes this recording clearly admissible uh, is something that most people think. I I have never had any problem with admissibility because it's certainly part of the conduct charged in the first indictment. And it's a it goes to some critical issues involving Trump's knowledge that he could not declassify items once he left the presidency, something that seems self-evident, but prosecutors like to sometimes be able to prove the self-evident. So I, I'm not so sure that this was a question of admissibility. And look, as, as an appellate lawyer, I'm usually really careful about those sorts of things and willing to engage even in redundancy to ensure that an important piece of evidence is admissible. This was always going to come in. I think what sets this new charge apart from the other retention charges is this isn't just a document that's found in a ballroom or a bathroom. This is a document that Trump is waving around. They're joking about the fact that these are secrets. I think you want this charge in so that when the jury goes back to deliberate and that maybe that one cautious juror or the one holdout jury is saying, this stuff was just lying around. They weren't doing anything with it. The other jurors can say, he was waving around 
the Iran battle plan like it was a souvenir, like it was, you know, candy in a jar to pass out to visitors. I think that's a jury sort of a strategy. Yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be made that this new count that was not in the original indictment, but is a new additional charge, is the most compelling resonating charge in the whole indictment. You know, it really is. And if you're worried about admissibility because of Judge Cannon, and of course, federal judges have discretion about what evidence is admitted at trial. And once the jury's impaneled and double jeopardy has attached, it's awfully difficult for prosecutors to get any sort of appeal on that. What what the typical strategy is, you try to get the judge to rule on admissibility before the jury is impaneled. But again, the judge doesn't have to. And so if you're concerned that Eileen Cannon is a bad actor, then maybe you do want to include this in the indictment as a defensive maneuver. But if that's where you end up on this judge at this point, um, that suggests that DOJ is is really, really deeply concerned about her in, in ways that should be addressed in other sorts of motions. So I, I think ultimately this is indicted because it is, as you say, the most serious charge in this whole mess so far. And just so people understand, as a matter of draftsmanship, how, how simple it is as a matter of drafting to add a charge, everything in the indictment with respect to this new count remains the same. The story is the same. The recitation of the transcript is the same. All they've done is at the end of that section of the indictment added a sentence. The document that Trump possessed and showed on July 21, 2021 is charged as count 32 in the superseding indictment. And then you have later you have a count that corresponds to it. So it's very simply done and deftly done without doing too much damage to the original language of the indictment. So continue with the guided tour of, of the new indictment. <laughs> yeah. there, there are another yeah. two counts, 40 and 41, that I think are really interesting. They are really important. These are the new obstruction of justice charges. They relate to the same conduct, with, which is this incredible story that we now have more detail on about as soon as Trump learns that there is a subpoena for documents, he launches Walt Nauta back to Mar-a-Lago, interrupts some travel that they're in the middle of, and Nauta talks with two other Trump employees um, about the video security tapes. How long do these stay in place for? You know, how long do we retain them for? What can we do to delete them? It is such classic obstruction. It feels more like an episode of the Three Stooges than a former president of the United States conducting his business. And this all comes to light, apparently, because one of the employees, you know, sort of realizes what's going on and says, no bueno. And the IT guy says... You know, I can't do anything about this. I don't have the authorities that I would need. The tapes don't get destroyed. They ultimately, at least some of them, get recovered by DOJ. And now we have two new obstruction charges. They're very powerful, you know. So people understand, when someone talks about doing something with direct relevant evidence, particularly videotape or audio tape or something like that, after a federal grand jury subpoena has been issued, I don't know that obstruction gets much more serious than that, right? I've done organized crime cases where they did not obstruct this hard. Yeah, and so this is another question about why um, it doesn't matter, really. And it's pretty quickly after the original indictment was filed. And it shouldn't upset the apple card. There's not a lot of discovery that's voluminous relating to the new... I mean, what sometimes will happen is you have an indictment... 
Then three months later, you have a superseding indictment and you add four counts. And those additional four counts come with a lot of discovery, a lot of testimony, a lot of new documents. And it gives grist to the defendant if the defendant wants say, well, now we have to push the trial back further because we've been delayed. We've been preparing on the assumption of these other counts. The four new counts add a layer of complication and complexity. I don't think these do that, but the argument will be made. How much of this do you think has to do with you know, getting new testimony or frustration with this other employee, the Oliveira, who, by the way, we should point out who he is. Right. So de Oliveira started life um, as a valet for Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And in 2022, he becomes a property manager, longtime loyal employee of the former president who ends up a long ways from where he started, is perceived as being very loyal. Parts of the allegations in the superseding indictment um, involve Walt Nauta sort of uh, reaching out for reassurances of his loyalty and being told that he is solid. So this is someone who, um, I mean, you may disagree with this, Preet. This is the kind of guy who I feel sure would have been approached prior to the indictment and offered a deal in exchange for testimony. No, I totally agree. And that's no why I think maybe that was, there was a continuing conversation about that and yeah, it I mean, went south more recently. No reason for this guy to be a defendant looking at a couple of felonies that have 20-year maxes on them. And so I think, you know, maybe we'll talk about it or maybe we'll leave it for another day. But there's some real questions here about the quality of, of legal advice he's getting, whether that legal advice is protecting his interests or other people's interests. Um, it's It's not really at all clear to us. I think we should be candid about saying what the timeline is. But there are these interesting references to Tavares, the IT guy who has not become a defendant and looks like he is in fact cooperating with the government here. And he seems to be the one who tells the government the story at some point in time about de Oliveira's um, involvement and seems to provide much of the basis for charging him. You know, I guess the other question that arises from the addition of de Oliveira is how it looks at trial that you have one defendant, the lead defendant, is Donald Trump the most famous person in the world, possibly, former commander-in-chief, president of the United States, and two very, very low sort of people on the totem pole. And we've had this conversation before with respect to the likelihood that one or more people will want to separate the trial as between Trump and Nauta, do you think, and we'll get to the additional charge against de Oliveira in a moment, with the addition of a second sort of low person on the totem pole, does that trial, <clears throat> does the trial as to all three of them go on? Or will there be a motion to sever? Will there be two motions to sever? Will there be a trial against Trump and then separately Nauta and de Oliveira? Will there be three trials? How do you think that plays out? You know, I'm sure that there will be motions to sever. It would almost be malpractice for de Oliveira's lawyer, um, and certainly for Nauta's lawyer, too, not to sever because they are not. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, Thank you for supporting our work.